Hello, and welcome to the Future Christian Podcast, your source for insights and ideas into what it means to live as a follower of Jesus in the 21st century. At the Future Christian Podcast, we talk to pastors, authors, and other faith leaders for helpful advice and practical wisdom to help you and your community of faith walk boldly into the future. Here's your host, Lauren Richmond Jr. Welcome to the Future Christian Podcast. I'm Lauren Richmond, and today I'm welcoming Dr. Christina Barland Edmondson. She is a higher education instructor, organizational consultant, and co host of the Truth Table Podcast. She is the co author of Faithful Anti Racism and has served in a variety of roles in higher education, including as a dean for intercultural student development at Calvin University. She is also a certified cultural intelligence facilitator, public speaker, mental health therapist, and a consultant in the area of ethics, equity, and Christian leadership development. Christina holds a PhD in counseling psychology from Tennessee State University, an MS degree in family therapy from the University of Rochester, and a bachelor's degree in sociology from Hampton University. Her writing has been seen and referenced in a variety of outlets, including Essence.com, YourBlackWorld.com, and Gospel Today magazine. All right, welcome to the show, Dr. Christina Edmondson. Thanks so much for being here. What else would you like our listeners to know about yourself? Oh, what else would I like them to know? Um, that, um, yeah, that I I really enjoy um, trying to think deeply about a whole lot of things. <laughs> so I have a social science background, and people are interesting and fascinating and compelling. But I think maybe more of the quirky stuff is that I'm a big fan of uh, of musicals and theater and mm-hmm. um I love to be entertained. Entertain me. Those with talent. So um, that would be additional things about me. What's a musical or theater production you've seen recently? Yeah, I have season passes here at Tennessee Performing Arts, where the city I live in. Oh, wow. I think what's the most recent thing? (laughs) I told you, I'm serious about (laughs) my my theater life. Gosh, I'm I'm drawing a, unfortunately, I'm drawing a blank on the most recent one that I saw. But I can tell you my my favorites are like probably the classics, like Les Mis. I can watch Les Mis every week. Mm -hmm. (laughs) I probably could watch Layman's every week. Um, And uh, yeah, you know, Raising the Sun. um, I grew up uh, participating in theater as a kid. And so at the one of the oldest um, African-American founded uh, theaters in Baltimore, where I grew up. And so I think that's where that love and and passion came from. So um, yeah, when, when it comes back to me, I will in the middle of this interview, Say the name yeah, of the play that's coming to mind. <laughs> I'll be like, let's talk about Anthony. By the way, the name of this play is, you know, I'll, I'll make it known. Well, thanks for engaging that with me. Uh, <laughs> share, if you would, about your journey of faith, uh, what coming to the faith looked like for you, and what your faith looks like today. Yeah, so um, I, I don't have any memory of um, there being a time when. Um, I did not know that there was a God. Um, I don't think I've ever actually even talked about that really publicly, but, or, or, and didn't, and wasn't having a conversation in some way with there's, there is a creator. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and I remember as a, as a little girl having a very, you know, kind of just like literal faith in the sense of, you know, I was told that Jesus is going to return for, mm-hmm. Uh, God's people. And I was like, hey, why not this Easter? Let's go. Like, like, come and get me. Um, so, uh, so my parents were um, active in their local church community. We were not, I mean, I have friends who were like, you know, they were at church multiple times a week for, you know, 10 hour mm-hmm. services kind of thing. That wasn't quite our story. I mean, my parents were involved, engaged. It was definitely a part of their life, but not just what they did at church, but how they lived outside of church. Um, especially my mom, you know, I could find my mother uh, praying by the side of her bed throughout the day, uh, you know, weekends or so. Um, and prayer was just a very um, central part of our family's life. My dad would stop at a red light and say, like, like let's pray together. Mm-hmm. Um, and so when I, I think had all the gospel teaching that I'd been taught throughout my childhood really kind of coalesce or enliven within me. I was probably, oh, late adolescence, 17, 18-ish, um, and I was in college, is when those things became just vibrant, 
before me hmm. um, that um, that Jesus' love is for me specifically, but also for people called unto uh, Christ's self. I wouldn't have had that language to just describe it in that way at that point. Um, and that that love, um, yeah, was was unending and unrelenting, um, and it was towards me in specificity. Uh, and so, um, and that I think demanded a surrender of one's life, a, a, gra- a grateful giving over yeah, of one yeah. one's life uh, to the God who has who has given me life and meaning. So, I would say that from that point, um, the maturation of my faith became one that was more marked by. Um, yeah, by study and um, community with the the other Christians, all kinds of communities with other Christians um, from that point until now. Great. So I'm guessing just what you shared about your childhood, prayer being so central in your parents' lives, is prayer is prayer a helpful spiritual practice for you today still? It is, although I <laughs> although I think of prayer as like one of those things like you're never. It has to be a discipline. Like, I think it yeah. has to be a discipline yeah. uh, for a reason. Yep. I mean, things that we call discipline are usually things that don't come, like, you know, easily or readily, right. naturally. Right. <laughs> it's a discipline because, like, like for me working out, I'm like, oh, let me go work out. I do not like to work out, but I should work yeah. out. <laughs> so that's it's a discipline in my life. Um, and I think in some ways prayer can, can feel like that until it gets kind of habituated. But um, it, it, is, it is. It is not... Um, it, it, yeah, I think it's very easy for me to to go into like trying to fix things, and I'm, I am a person that's like a strategist mm-hmm. um, versus like my first stop being surrender, stillness, um, praying, <laughs> pausing. Um, so I again, I have to discipline myself to do that. I I help to lead a early morning prayer line, six a.m. Monday through Friday, uh, holidays and all. Wow. <laughs> so. Um, and that's, yeah, that's not necessarily so I can get, you know, there are no Christian points to be given. That is really because mm-hmm. I need that level of discipline. Yeah. And being in community praying together is something that I saw as a child. The church that I attended had an early morning in person, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, a five, I think it was five or 5.30 a.m. prayer time that, um, that like the for real, for real Christians <laughs> went yeah. to. Um, and, and so anyway, so I, I think in some ways I'm living in the tradition of those of those deacons probably from my childhood who, um, you know, oversaw that, that ministry. That's something that I still do now. You know, I'm intrigued by, you mentioned the discipline of, you know, getting up early and doing this regular prayer, pausing, taking a breath, whatever the, the words you used, how I can imagine, and I'm curious what you'd have to share about this, how helpful a practice it is in our kind of quick take social media, instant response society, like, how does that, do you, do you, do you feel like there's like real times where you're like, oh, this is, you can see it, see the practice having real world benefits and implications for you? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think, I mean, believers use language, like what it means to like be in the world, but not of the world. And one of the realities mm-hmm. of the world is that we are always on like a time crunch, like, <laughs> like time right. is, um, I don't have enough time or, you know, and uh, uh, busyness and our relationship with time can, um, can, can be, I think for many mm-hmm. people, really dysfunctional. And, and yet I think our identity as believers is that we are on an eternal trajectory, not mm-hmm. on a time crunch. <laughs> and yeah. I think that breathing and prayer reminds me that, yes, I got deadlines, I have things to do, but I'm actually in a part of an eternal story. Um, mm. And I think that I think that reorients the way that we think about, about the time that we have, how to use and how to give the time that we have too, right? So, um, yeah. Yeah, part of an eternal story. I like that. I like that. Thanks for sharing that. Well, I had uh, Christina on to talk about her book that she co-wrote with Chad Brennan called Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Pack, excuse me, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. And uh, share, if you would, kind of what brought uh, or what led you and Chad to write the book, first of all. Yes, that's that's the making of the band story. <laughs> so, um, yeah. so yeah, I got the pleasure to work with uh, with Chad Brennan some ye- some years back. I guess it was maybe maybe four or five. It's pre pandemic, uh, so time has has become a weird thing since the pandemic in my memory. But um, 
right? But we right. we were invited to an event uh, uh, along with several other people. It was still fairly small, maybe it was probably under twenty people. Uh, by Brenda Salter McNeil, um, who is um, doc- Dr. Uh, Salter McNeil is an academician and um, a clergy member um, who has done work around racial justice and reconciliation from a Christian standpoint for many, many years. And I had not met her before, but I was invited to come out. I think I think she had mentored uh, Chad, I think, at some point as well. Um, but a group of us, less than 20, for just really like encouragement, brainstorming, little kind of think tank dynamics, uh, prayer together, et cetera. And that's where I really got to meet uh, both Chad Brennan, Michael Emerson, and some other researchers who were there. And we began to just talk about, you know, where we are, like our, our uh, respective places of working and serving. And uh, from there, we continued dialogue. And the body of research that both uh, both Chad, uh, Michael, uh, Glenn Bracey, and others were working on well, this really extensive quantitative and qualitative uh, research project was 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 under was underway, and I had the opportunity to kind of speak into that about some question design and you know some of some of those pieces as well. But they really did this, really did conduct this huge project, and it was bringing to bear lots of um, fascinating data <laughs> that that could be used, explored, understood. And Chad reached out to me um, after having other conversations just about research questions and to see if I had an interest in writing a book. And the book that we would put together would be a little bit different than maybe some of the other people participating in the research project. So their mm-hmm. books are written from um, from from an, from an academic uh, uh, vantage point solely. Mm-hmm. Um, and whereas we wanted to write a book that would, the, the first audience for the book are people right. who identify as Christians, people who are like, I read the Bible, I, you know, and, uh, I pray like those types of people. <laughs> and so, um, that is, that's the audience that we wanted to bring to bear a whole host of disciplines to talk about, um, anti-racism with them together. So I agreed to that project and then we started, we started working on it and, um, we put a whole lot of things in the pot. And, and made quite the dish <laughs> together. Yeah, yeah. I was I was impressed by the the, di- the different research and the 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 data points you had about different um, from respondents around different different topics. I thought that was very impressive. So even for that alone, I, I thought the research collected was very impressive. You know, there's several uh, several things that, of course, that stand out in the book, and and to me, one thing that that I really uh, really highlighted was you, you kind of share your own story, if I remember correctly, as a child about you, you write that you believe there were not that many white Christians in America because they couldn't be connected to the Jesus I knew. And that really just hit me right away reading that. Yeah. I mean, I, when I wrote that, <laughs> when I wrote that, it wasn't necessarily to like kind of like, um, to shame or to like pinch. Right. Right. <laughs> it was it was really honestly a sense it, one it speaks to I think the hypersegregation of yeah. of the church. Mm-hmm. Uh but also I think I I had been introduced to um and and Jesus when we think about Jesus all of our cultural backgrounds and our own stuff uh causes us to to tr- to to project into who, who Jesus is, right? So all of us mm-hmm. do on an individual, but also on a cultural level. But I do think that what I was offered or, or, or the Jesus that was put in front of me to the extent that was biblical Jesus was um, a Jesus who has something to say about our own kind of personal piety, like the way we live, what we do, what we don't do, but also our love for our neighbor and our enemy. And so mm-hmm. um, th- there were, as I, as I learned about like American sociology and history, even my own experiences, uh, n- not tons of them, but still experiences with racism, uh, blatant in your face racism as a child, I, um, there was this disconnect for me. I was thinking, well, clearly Jesus yeah. does not call one to be racist or to, or to mistreat your neighbor. Like you can't even mistreat it. In Christianity, you cannot mistreat your enemy. Right let yeah. alone your neighbor or someone who shares the same faith conviction. So I just thought, okay, this is a small, that <laughs> there must, there may not be a lot of white Christians. Yeah. <laughs> the more I begin to learn about particularly the history of, of racism and the civil rights movement and um, indigenous genocide and um, 
enslavement and the ways in which there were uh, people who identify as Christians and not just not just like, you know, I, this is my church maybe over here, right, but like right. leaders, prominent right. figures, theologians. I thought there's a there's a huge disconnect here. Yeah. You know, one of the things that I think is, um, as I understand, like a really formative piece of the book, foundational piece of the book, excuse me, is is uh, you call st- uh, structural racism, um, Christians understanding the importance of, of structural racism, if I'm terming that correctly. Um, and you kind of address this early on in the book that so often in Christian circles, this can kind of be like these relational dynamics can be turned as a as a distraction from the gospel. I mean, I've I've heard this for years and years and years of like, mm-hmm. oh, let's focus on the core thing, you know, getting people saved, leading them, uh, mm-hmm. sharing the gospel, mm-hmm. and then mm-hmm. you know, if we focus on these core things, those other things will take care of themselves. And and I'll just say from my perspective, like churches have been focusing on those core things for years and years and years, and somehow <laughs> these these mm-hmm. these racism issues still remain. So there's a disconnect. Uh, but talk about that disconnect and why do you don't you don't think that's appropriate? Yeah. So so um so a couple of thoughts come to mind when we when we when we hear that. And that, again, to your point, that is really common rhetoric, particularly from uh, sociology, sociologically speaking, kind of white evangelical conservative mm-hmm. American Christian, right? Mm-hmm. Um, that this this sense of um, salvation, people coming to Jesus, they will, uh, you know, put down racism. Uh, and all you know, in all of its manifestation, and we just know that that's just um, we know that also that we know that's not true, <laughs> and we also know that there may be something up with this particular f- expression of Christianity, which seems to have a complicity or kind of a dullness in in discerning and or being agitated or ability to see racial injustice for what it is. Mm-hmm. Um, so, if you think about what it means for um, you know, if you go as far back as like the doctrine of discovery, <laughs> yeah, um, or you or you think of, or you think about the ways in which you know theologians and more recent uh, from the doctrine of discovery, like uh, George Whitfield's uh, use of his theological skills to create a justification for slavery as a practice to come to the state of Georgia. This is one of the most prominent evangelical theologians mm-hmm. in the American story, and right. so there is something. There's something in the water. <laughs> There's something <laughs> in the water, <laughs> and that that creates kind of this um, this unique dullness, this this uh, insensitivity to racial injustice and racial oppression, even if it's like right in front of people's faces, right? So, um, I I think, and again, because we are so hyper segregated, uh, we may not find ourselves with the opportunity to have. Other people who are believers say, like, this is a blind spot. <laughs> um, as a matter of fact, we may even be told in our tradition, maybe in, in terms of white evangelical conservative tradition, that 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 group is supposed to be the teachers. They're right, the ones right. holding the true and unpolluted gospel. They're the ones that should be missionaries and and share and, and exporting this belief system around the world. So there's not even a there, there's even a working belief system that goes against gaining the insight and the correction uh, that that is so necessary for us to um, to to put down this this evil of racism. Yeah. Now I I can really um, being reminded of your sociology background. I can really uh, I guess hear the sociology in some of your words here in the text because mm-hmm. um, you write about common memory being crucial to forming community. And I know I know others have done work on. Um, the lack of common memory, uh, but talk about that because I think we're seeing that a lot in the last couple of years. There's, yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's battles right over history books and and yes. what, <laughs> what what happened. You know, what yeah. students should be told. Absolutely, because because it really matters. That's not right. that's not superficial. You can see how powerful it is. You know, I was sharing right. with someone recently about the. Um, the Daughters of the Confederacy. So th- this mm-hmm. group of, of women who are a generation or more out from um, the, the Civil War. And really, they have this charge to uphold the memory of, of, of Confederate soldiers who died in the Civil War. And, and again, we can credit them with a significant amount 
of the Confederate statues in, you know, all around the United States, for example. But that's not the mm. only thing they did. It, it wasn't just right. the um, the statue work they did, it, but to, you know, but the way in which we're socialized and shaped, because one of their most um, impactful uh, behaviors was what they did in regards to the education system. So uh, one of the reasons why you talk to people who still who are still looking at the Civil War, like, you know, who's still on the side of the Confederacy in 2022 right. as it relates to the Civil War, um, is because one of the things the Daughters of the Confederacy emphasize, and they use their influence through the school systems, through not just in the South, as much as they could throughout the United States, mm-hmm. was to promote some specific ideas. One of those was, is that uh, slavery was not that bad, and that most enslaved people were treated like family. So that, that almost sounds like a talking point. And the reason yeah. why is because it was. It was one of the few talking points that was emphasized. <laughs> um, and, and then also one of the biggest ones is, is that the Civil War was not about slavery. So that was actually, the, that's one of, you know, one of many talking points that were reinforced all the way up into the 1970s um, in, in textbooks in the United States of America. <laughs> So that is, so we have, a, there's a, there's a socialization process. And so textbooks are real powerful. You know, they knew, the Daughters of the Confederacy knew that textbooks were, were powerful um, and they still are. They still are powerful. Um, what does it mean to have a textbook today in 2022 that does not talk about the history of Reconstruction at all? That mm-hmm. might say, like, you know, the Emancipation Proclamation happened. Abraham Lincoln set the slaves free and everything was great. <laughs> yeah. So so then today in 2022, when you talk about there's still racial injustice, people are like, what, 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 what do you mean? There was the emancipation or there was there was Dr. King. There was a civil rights movement. So nobody right. actually talks about what happened uh, in the late 1800s when the Emancipation Proclamation went forward and the ways in which there were more black senators then than there are now and how that came to be. <laughs> and the, the founding of the Ku Klux Klan, the over 5,000 lynchings in the country, the uh, the targeting of black neighborhoods and businesses for eminent domain. So there's a long, long history. And I'm just speaking about a slither of black American history related to racial injustice and not even the full scope. But if you give give one sentence to it, one page to it, then it helps to cement the ignorance, right? And it's an ignorance that some yeah. people are, are actually even attracted to, right? Because when we have to reckon with the realities of history, it can cause us not to feel good, right? Um, right. Because, <laughs> you know, because it doesn't feel good. So uh, there's a, str- a psychology term, strategic ignorance, right? Where it's like, don't right. tell me the stuff that I don't want to know, right? Um, yeah. And I think if you have power and you have strategic ignorance, you can shape textbooks and the media and all kinds of things uh, to reinforce uh, practices and ideologies that don't cause these kind of identity crises and existential crisis. And it, it doesn't rub up against American mythology. Yeah, so it's funny because I remember even as a kid and I went to Christian school, um, being taught this in the textbook, I swear, like, oh, Robert E. Lee was – he was a swell guy who just was, <laughs> you know, right. he didn't really want to do it. But he, you know, he was a Christian and signed up for the yeah. cause, you know, just to to mm-hmm. to support his fellow countrymen you know, and then going to to Bible college, there was a guy from the South, and he's like, you know, states rights, states rights, states rights. And I was like, what <laughs> yes, are you the right to about? own the right to own right. slaves? Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. So, it, so it's well cemented for sure. <laughs> yeah, but that strategic ignorance. I mean, we're literally seeing that being propagated um, current day, and maybe I'm forgive me if I'm asking too much here, but I mean, what's what do Christians do? What What do you advise churches, Christians, people who are trying to fo- faithfully follow the way of Jesus in light of these things? So, well, uh, one thing I try to remind people that is there is enough grace to tell the truth. Sometimes when we avoid truth, it to me is mm-hmm. an indictment about mm-hmm. what we believe about grace. <laughs> um, and we can actually take an honest look at uh in the case of we're talking about focusing on the states alone of, of the United States history, we can actually tell the truth about it. We can tell um, 
the, the, the good stories, but we can also tell the, the really disturbing and painful stories and their present day outworkings and consequences. There is enough grace to tell the truth. And if the people who claim to be um, the people of grace, mm-hmm. who have been shaped and, and born, born again by grace, if they won't tell the truth, right, um, yeah. then we have a real crisis. Um, on our hands. And so that that's one thing I invite people into doing. I would also say that it is it is not lost on me, the, the doctrine of the Catholicity of the church that Christ has called to himself, people from every tribe, nation, and tongue. And there is something for us in our spiritual development and understanding in having people who have very different stories and experiences than our own, um, who help us in our uh, Christian maturity process. Again, American Christianity is largely hyper-segregated, mm-hmm. um, but there is much for us to learn through the stories of other believers um, and their experiences of the world and how they have been treated. <laughs> um, and, and if we truly saw them as brothers, as, as siblings, as brothers and sisters, as siblings uh, in Christ, then we would have to lend our, he- our, our ear and our hearts and our compassion towards yeah. them. Um, so, uh, believers of color, uh, and, and, and as the book highlights, even specifically African American believers, have a very different way of thinking about race relations in the United States in comparison to uh, white Christians. And I think it shows just how hyper segregated and disconnected, for example, those two groups are from each other, and mm-hmm. that you would have one group that's like, obviously, we have a race problem. <laughs> and another right. group that's like, what do you, whatever do you mean? Uh, it, it just yeah. speaks to the lack of credibility um, that the group with more uh, social power, uh, white Christians have and not listening to the voices and experiences, for example, of black Christians. Yeah. I really like that line. There's enough grace to tell the truth. Um, what a powerful statement. I think, so often white people just get this sh- overwhelming shame and guilt. And again, that's literally what some of the, some of the state laws, education laws are, right? We don't want anybody to feel guilty. Yes. Yeah, and just to yeah. kind of proclaim the Christian people message. People will feel of, bad. <laughs> there's enough grace to cover this. There is enough. There is absolutely enough grace to cover it. I, I, um, yeah, I just, I think that there's so much freedom for us in terms of the redemptive power of the cross for people who are Christians to think mm-hmm. about the fact that Jesus not only nails sin, sin is not only what, what Christ bears, but he also bears shame. And I think that that's something that's often not emphasized and is lost <laughs> on people um, because the, the bearing of our shame is so important uh, because that shame will cause us not to repent it will cause us not to do justice. It will cause us not to tell the truth. We'll, we really will start um, hiding and bearing things that are actually opportunities for us to love our neighbors um, and, to, and to witness to Christ's transformative power. But when that shame functions like a toxin and a suppressant, which, which Christ also died to set us free from shame, <laughs> um, we, we will not do the work that we have been called to do. This is this is why the the Christian message I think still like still gives me chills at times because like mm-hmm. there's just sometimes it just it just hits me in a different way and I think this is mm-hmm. one of the you know speaking honestly like this is I think what makes the 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 Christian message so relevant for me because like we think about how it just continues to speak into our lives mm-hmm. uh, this yeah. is such a powerful way of like you know so many for white people are like and people in general who are you know. Christ set is setting you free from that shame. There's grace enough to move forward. So great message. Really appreciate it. Yeah, for for sure. Well, and I think I think for people who um, have been uh, captivated and reshaped by the by the gospel, <laughs> like the, mm-hmm. the gospel that has cosmic and eternal implications, that big gospel, right. not like the small miniature gospel, but the big gospel. I think. Um, it is like it is like a diamond, like like that. It's it picks you know it has all these like details and and um, and as you as you grow in your faith, you never grow from being amazed by <laughs> the beauty of the gospel. <laughs> you know, I I just think that people who are the most mature in their Christian faith 
are the most childlike in the in hmm. the sense of their appreciation of the simplicity of the gospel. Right? We never mature out of being impressed by um, just the the profound beauty, joy, and how encompassing Christ's gospel is. Yeah, yeah, this is great. Um, let me ask you a couple more questions here. Mm-hmm. Our, our time is running pretty quick. Um, before we take a break, uh, one of the things I think this was. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with Dan Stringer. He wrote a book, Struggling with Evangelicalism. And oh. you know, one of the things he highlighted is that people can people people can label themselves like evangelical um as as a political uh, identity more than a spiritual or religious identity. Um sure. you talk about <laughs> the challenge of Christians often uh, choosing political views over spiritual views. I mean, you've probably heard this said many times that, you know, people get cable news 20 hours a week they get their pastor one hour a week type thing mm-hmm, yeah. i mean wh- i mean as a sociologist right like what what advice do you have for pastors <laughs> oh my goodness god bless pastors uh, you know there pa- pastors get picked on quite a bit i tend to have a I, I, one i'm married to a pastor um but i have lots of very good and close friends and i and i teach pastors at time mm-hmm. um at times um so what I would remind, uh, what I would prompt the pastor to do is to remind the people that we, um, if we were just to eat one fantastic, awesome, big meal once a week, we would still be malnourished, mm-hmm. <laughs> right? Yeah. Um, and that there is something about the way in which we learn from um, the Hebrew Scriptures, Old Testament, and t- to the New Testament about the way that we're to live our lives um reflecting on the word of God. Like it's what we're supposed to be thinking about throughout the day, what we're supposed to be praying about. Uh, We have to have gospel saturated lives. It cannot be an add on. Um, And so, so I would be inviting people into that to a a life of Christian discipleship and education um, to, to really be surrounded by that and be thinking about and praying about that within the local congregation of how to encourage people in that regard, which is, which is beyond just, you know, a Wednesday night Bible study and the sermons, which are obviously impactful and important, but we mm-hmm. have to think about how do we, how do we live as believers, yeah. um, hour to hour, day to day. Um, the, the other, the other thing I would say is that I think they do have a right to challenge people about their, their, uh, the messaging that they're receiving. <laughs> so, hmm. um, and, and one of the, one of the ways they can do that, they can say, you know, who are you, who do you, who are your sources of credibility? Usually when I teach, I ask people to tell me in advance, like, who do they feel like is their unbiased, you know, like <laughs> whatever that word means to people, source right. of credibility. Cause I want to know who, who is in the room with you that I'm, that, and where, I, where I'm teaching. Like, I need to know who else is here with you in your thinking. And I think, I think ministries have, should ask people that question so that they know um, what is forming and shaping actually their kind of worldview and ethic uh, yeah. within the yeah, congregation. And one of the things that churches don't do, right? Cause churches are not schools they're not universities and for a good reason. But one of the things that helps us in the academic setting is that we actually test people about what they say and what they believe. <laughs> Like we give mm. people tests. And mm-hmm. so there are a lot of, I know all, all, tons of pastors or speakers and myself included that, you know, we, we have spoken places and people will come up to us and say, I remember when you said X, Y, Z. And I'm thinking like, I didn't say that. That wasn't even in my notes. So, so all of that, all of that to say that there are times when um, we think we're communicating a message to people mm-hmm. and pastors as the research bears out at times, there there can be a disconnect with what they believe their people are getting and hmm. what those people are actually walking mm-hmm. home with. And they don't have a way to test that. It's not like they're saying like at the end of their right. sermon, let's do a right. pop quiz on yeah. that. Um, if anything, what ends up happening is some scandal breaks out or somebody who somebody disappoints them. And then they're like, how could this have ever happened here? <laughs> you know, how could this happen on my watch? Right. Um, and so all of that to say is that we have to we have to be kind of um, giving each other opportunity to discern our ethics and beliefs. Yeah. Continued on this kind of uh, topic and theme of church and discipleship. Uh, you write that connection matters before content, uh, that relationships matter. Can you talk more about that and, and what that looks like in practice? Yeah. So, so people often sound like the communities 
that they believe they have acceptance from. <laughs> like they, they sound like their place of belonging. Mm-hmm. Um, now, whether that's true or not, it may not, you know, who knows? There can be some kind of rupture that lets them know, like, how much do I belong here or not? But so when I listen to people, I'm, I can get a sense of where they think they, who their people are, like where, mm-hmm. you know, where they think they belong theologically, politically, et cetera. Right. Cause we right. sound like the community where we have a, we have a door key. Uh, we, or we believe we have a door key within that community. So belonging is really, really critical. And I think even when we talk about a topic like race and racism, one of the reasons why people get really anxious, one of a few reasons, is because uh, as they as they deal with the realities of it, I think they start to feel a deep sense of loneliness, hmm. um, guilt mm-hmm. and shame. But also, yeah. what does this mean for me? And so even if we talk about what 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 does white identity mean within the last few hundred years as constructed <laughs> in the United States mm-hmm. story, for example, if you, right. if you start to really pull those threads for somebody who's kind of been given this language their whole life, yeah. it, it makes sense that there is an identity crisis that happens. Like, what does this mean? Who am I yeah. then? And they're, they're out to attack white people. And, and instead, yeah. they're not hearing people say, like, what does it mean to be white? Which is not the same thing as not loving and seeing and hearing uh, people who identify as white, right? So um, we we want to certainly uh, use our words in a way that teach truthfully and honestly, but we want people to feel a deep sense of connection to their their own humanity, their own value, but to the shared humanity that we have together, that they are not alone. Uh, when people feel a deep sense of loneliness, that is when they become uniquely susceptible to, you know, cult-like spaces, to be honest with you, Um, cult-like, gang-like spaces. Because, you know, we think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs at the bottom. He talks about, you know, uh, sleep and food, like these physiological needs. And then right Mm -hmm. there in the middle is belonging. But I would would, uh, respectfully push back on Maslow's hierarchy of needs and say that belonging actually comes before sleeping and eating. Because there is no sleeping. There is no sleeping or eating. If you think about how we come into this world, uh, we don't feed ourselves. We don't lay ourselves right. down to sleep. <laughs> we we have to have belonging. We have to have some kind of parent, some kind of guardian. Mm-hmm. We have to have community to even get our physiological needs met. Yeah. So um, belonging is so crucial. And if we think about this from a theological lens, it is it is God who looks at God's creation and says, hmm, after saying all this stuff was good, this is good, this is good, this is good. You know what? It's not good. Yeah, for humans to be alone. God says that about God's <laughs> and God's creation. So that belonging is so critical. So in learning, particularly learning challenging things that will rock us at our core, rock our sense of American identity or our own identity or our faith convictions, we are going to need to create the space where people have a deep sense of belonging um, as as we share content. Hmm. Yeah, because I imagine if I understand correctly, right, like so much, or at least have I heard it, there's so much radicalization of young white men who are lonely, isolated, and that's where so yeah. much is happening, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I I've, uh, I worked in Christian higher education um, as an administrator for almost a decade. And it's one of the things that I would raise to my colleagues, particularly my white male colleagues from representing mm-hmm. different institutions. I would say, I think we have I think we got an issue. <laughs> I think we have an issue. And I am very, I am concerned. Um, and so discipleship is so important for all people. And I think mm-hmm. oftentimes what we have, what we have offered different groups, particularly men, we tend to have offered them this narrative or story of bravado in some cases, um, which, yeah. which reinforces, quite frankly, it reinforces loneliness. It, it's yeah. all a show. It doesn't go deep. Um, yeah. And that's more about caring for yourself and roughing it. That's still yeah. not about a deep sense of belonging. So ultimately, it's insufficient. Even if you hear people, <laughs> you know, having workshops right. and books about the topic, it's it still is not going to satisfy that deep human need of belonging and community to to be known, to be seen, and people don't look away. And when we are not offering that to uh, young men, and obviously people are accountable for their own sinful behavior, we mm-hmm. shouldn't be blown away when we see Tiki Torch Nazis in Charlottesville saying, you will not replace us. <laughs> like, look at me. I am, you know, you're trying to get rid of me, right? Um, we What we saw was a, a very dangerous, frightening tantrum yeah. of people who did not feel seen or loved, and they are not going to have a place. 
So they're yelling out things like the Jews will not replace us and you will not replace us. That is a cry, uh, perversely distorted, but it's a, it's a cry for belonging and community. Wow. Yeah. Really good stuff here. I'm glad you're pointing out the kind of like the so often kind of like men's ministry motif of this kind (laughs) of like rugged masculinity that is just problematic in many ways. Lonely. Yeah. Um, There are more questions I want to ask you, but for the sake of time, let me ask you one more and then we'll take a break. You you said earlier that there's something in the water. Uh, we've talked about the historical problems in the church going back. I mean, we could go back further, but even just starting with the doctrine <laughs> of discovery to uh, George Whitfield Wright and uh, justifying slavery, American Christianity and the church has huge historical problems. Like, what church, what keeps you in the church? Why does it still matter? Do you think it's still valuable? And, and I'm making an assumption there, but if I'm hearing it correctly, yeah. it's something you think is still worth keeping. Oh, yeah, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> For sure. I, I also think, so my understanding of of the faith is it, it, doesn't, it doesn't start or stop with the political expression of white evangelical white American evangelicalism. And I think that if it did, man, that would be a place of despair. <laughs> that would be a problem. Right. And I think that's why we have a whole generation of kind of white ex-evangelicals, right? Mm-hmm. Um, is because that's all they know. That's the, that's what they think it is. And I'm like, well, have you ever checked out? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know the black church or the, you know, churches, I mean, or the church, even the churches of, you know, you know, the, the kind of the earliest converts yeah. of, you know, European traditions and African traditions and Asian traditions. I mean, I, I'm just like, oh, it's so much bigger. It's so much bigger. Now, there is an outsized impact, be, and I would say because of social power, that white conservative evangelicalism has. Um, and, you know, having that social power and having that oversized impact has real consequences, right? Because the good things are, are magnified, but the bad things are magnified right. and, 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 and a problem too. So I, I still see the church as, um, at, you know, as, you know, God's um, gift. I, I, I still see the church as headed by Christ. Um, I still see the church as a place of deep belonging that we just talked about, right? Where that's what it that's what it can be, and that is what it's supposed to be, and that is what it will become. So I have confidence in not Christian people getting it together, but in God's promises to the church, and it, and it really pretty much stops right there. So <laughs> where my confidence is, um, and and yeah, and, I, and I've just seen beautiful transformation. I've seen I've obviously lots of wild, ugly things too, right. but I've also seen beautiful, beautiful transformation. Um, and the church is yet a work in pro- a work in progress. Um, so that's why I think I still have a sense of of uh, connection and hope. And you know, ultimately, just theologically speaking, I you know I believe that when we are, or when, when you know when we are God's people, when God has us, God has us. Yeah. <laughs> um, and and although I may find myself at a place of you know I believe, but help my unbelief. Mm-hmm. Um, Jesus has shown himself through scripture and I would say in the testimony of of, of life uh, to be faithful to not um, be intimidated by the actual frustrations that we have because of of sin in this world and that's the unique benefit of having Jesus as our high priest fully God fully man as, in terms of my theological yeah, framework yeah and that and, and it is Christ's humanity and not just divinity that gives me confidence because Jesus knows, like Jesus knows social hierarchy. Jesus <laughs> knows corrupt systems. Mm-hmm, Jesus mm-hmm. knows people who use religion um, as a tool of empire. Yeah. Jesus knows it and he knows it so intimately. He still has the physical scars in yeah. his glorified body good stuff. about it. It's good stuff. So that, that in a, sa- a sense gives me confidence if we're talking about that Jesus, the Jesus preached down by the apostles, not like the American made Jesus. <laughs> Sure, <laughs> but the but the Jesus the, the, of Nazareth, mm-hmm. that Jesus gives me a whole lot of confidence. Oh, this is great stuff. Um, let's take a quick break, and we'll come back with some closing questions. 
All right. We're back with Dr. Christina Edmondson. And uh, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate the conversation. Uh, the book is, again, Faithful Anti-Racism, Moving Past, Moving Past Talk to Systemic Change. Uh, Christina and Chad Brennan are the authors. Recommend it for, for our listeners. Uh, some closing questions. You can take these as seriously or not as you'd like to. <laughs> okay. uh, but if you're Pope for a day, uh, what would that day look like? What would you want to do? Pope for the day? Oh, man, nobody would give me that kind of authority. Um, <laughs> but if they did, and along with your question, you know what? I think I would like, I, I would call people out to like, a, you know, first first third of the day would be like a, a worldwide like prayer time, like mm-hmm. prayer, intercession, crying out to God. Um, and then obviously uh, service to mm-hmm. others. <laughs> And then maybe like public reading of of the gospel, because <laughs> I feel like we could we need that to get on the same page. I mean, and then but that service part would be, um, yeah, serving all aspects of of the church, the persecuted church, the underground church, et cetera, but also serving our neighbors well, figuring out how to, you know, how, how to do that um, as a part of our Christian joy is in serving other people. That's a good day. That's a good full day. Um, <laughs> Nobody's going to give me that, but I would like it. <laughs> a, a theologian or historical Christian figure you would want to meet or bring back to life? Yes. Um, gosh, there's so many. Um, <laughs> uh, I, I So I, I'm going I'm, I'm to cheat and I'm going to answer more than just one question. But, sure. But yeah, I, I, do, I, do, I do have a fac- fascination with the unnamed people, particularly unnamed women in Scripture. Sure. Um, right. So, so whether it's, you know, widows and just people who are just, just kind of unnamed, but, but are highly impactful to the redemptive narrative and story. Like I want to know them by name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but in terms of like, you know, uh, more recent American history, I mean, I would love to meet someone like Harriet Tubman, um, who again is an example of a person whose resistance to racism and injustice and even uh, implicitly sexism mm-hmm. was rooted in these this palpable uh, convictions about uh, about God and God's love for her and God's redemptive story. Uh, so much encouragement and empowerment that this is the first woman in American history to to lead an army to emancipate plantations. I mean, this is this is a, an amazing woman. Talk about talk about a mm-hmm. biblical a woman of biblical character. <laughs> I would love to meet her. And she ended her life. I think uh, the story is that she she planted a garden. She married a, a younger man and she adopted a daughter. What what a lovely, <laughs> what a lovely life. So I would love to glean her wisdom and her stories of perseverance and survival. Fabulous. Yeah, that's good. Um, <laughs> what do you think history will remember from our current time and place? Oh, my goodness. I think history is going to look back and go, duh. Like it's right there. Like y'all didn't like, like you know, it's, it's like it's like the dancing, the dancing uh, frog. You know, when you're so that I don't know if you ever seen that cartoon. It's like when the like the person who's like he's dancing, he's dancing. Don't you see him dancing? And when everybody looks at it, you know, he stops dancing and he looks like a regular. It's like this is like old Looney Tunes or something, right? Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> but to, but to the person who can see it. Exactly. To the person who can see it, he's dancing all the place. He's tap dancing. He's got a cane, everything. Mm-hmm. And I think that in the present moment, we, too too many of us are like the person who's like, I don't see anything dancing. But his, but in the future, people are going to look back and say, like, you, dancing is happening all over the place. In other words, um, there are great opportunities for relief of social injustice. There's great opportunities for truth telling. Um, things are closer than they appear. And yet, I think we're like, no, I don't see anything happening. <laughs> so yeah. I'm hoping, I'm hoping that's not what they say about us. But I, 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 I think that that's what they might say about us in the future. Yeah. Um, what are your hopes for the future, of Christianity? Yeah. Well, my hope is in Jesus. <laughs> Sociologically speaking, <laughs> I expect for people to do what they have done throughout a significant part of history. Unfortunately, which is for Christianity to, to um, Christianity to kind of be used mm-hmm. as a way to amass social power um, and political power, and so I, I I think that is what we have before us, and what will continue without 
revival or intervention, yeah. uh, expressions of God's grace. I do not think that God is intimidated and that uh, God's plans are not uh, confused or thrown off or derailed by um, our 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 nonsense. Um, but I, I do think that that's one of the things that is going to be happening. It is an opportunity, though, as people are the ex-evangelical movement and as people who are, you know, passionately calling themselves Christian nationalists. Mm-hmm. It is an opportunity for there to be clarity about the gospel and about the people of God um, who, from the very beginning and the founding of the church, have been kind of this minority ragtag group. <laughs> Mm-hmm. <laughs> that that that's kind of weird to everybody. It's like, oh, they they're taking in children that people throw away. They're they like women speak here. They, are, yeah. you know, they, you know, people who used to own slaves, like you know, um, Philemon is like, oh, this is now my brother. As a matter of fact, he might even be my superior because he's been yeah. so impacted by the Apostle Paul. Like we we should be really odd in our society. So it's, it is an opportunity for the odd ducks amongst us, <laughs> the odd duck Christians amongst us, for us to stand out um, during this season. That's good. That's a good. That's a good hopeful take. That's that's all I got. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate your conversation. Uh, tell our listeners where they can. Uh, Find out more about you, connect with you, those kind of things. Yeah, for sure. So I'm I'm still on Twitter. D- didn't run away quite yet. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's at Dr. C. Edmondson. That's my handle there. So you can see my my musings and my thoughts. And they're all over the place from a little psychology, political science to, you know, prayers. It depends on how I'm feeling at the moment. I no rhyme or reason to my Twitter account right now. And then um, as we've talked about this book, Faithful Anti-Racism, that I wrote with um, uh, Chad Brennan, it's available everywhere that books are sold. And Seminary Now also has a course that is based on this book that uh, you or your, your church or your school could take together. And so check that out if you're looking for a deeper dive along with this book. I also have another book that was published in 2022 with um, some uh, dear friends connected to the podcast that I've been a part of for a few years now, Truth Table. Um, yeah, and that book is yeah. called Truth. Tru- yeah, Truth Table: Black Women's Musings on Life, Love, and Liberation. So it's a collection of essays on a whole host of topics. Um, so you can check that out as as well. I'll have to try to remember to put a link for the for the podcast in my show notes, okay. but. Um, yeah, yeah. Well, that, well, there's that podcast, and then there's also uh, for those who um, want to bulk up their Christian disciplines. We do have a podcast, Truth Table, Get in the Word with um, IVP that comes, okay. you get a new episode every day, and it's one year of Bible reading. We, uh, Kimmy, Juan, and I, we read the Bible to you <laughs> and, and about 20 minutes or under a day, and then we pray about the scripture. So we've had quite a few people that have, have added um, our voices <laughs> to their their devotion time. Um, but as somebody who's, who has started Bible in a year many times and have not gotten through, right. you can join me. You can join me in this process. T- together, we're going we're to make it through. That's great. That's great. Well, thanks so much for your time. Really appreciate the conversation. Uh, I always leave folks with a word of peace, so uh, may God's peace be with mm-hmm. you. Thanks for joining us on the Future Christian Podcast. To learn more about Lauren or the podcast, visit future-christian.com. One more thing before you go, do us a favor and subscribe to the podcast. And if you're feeling especially generous, leave a review. It really helps us get the word out to more people about the podcast. The Future Christian Podcast is a production of Torn Curtain Arts and Resonate Media. Our episodes were mixed by Danny Burton, and the production support is provided by Paul Romaglevitt. Thanks, and go in peace. Peace.